Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Dr. Jill Stoddard is the director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management in San Diego. She's a therapist who specializes in acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, and is a recognized ACT trainer. She's been on our podcast before, episode 77 on acceptance and commitment therapy talking about her previous book, The Big Book of Act Metaphors. And today we're going to talk about her brand new book, Be Mighty, A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance. Jill, you're also a mom of two. I am. Yep. I have a seven and a half year old daughter and a five and a half year old son. Okay. So busy working mom. Um, We're going to talk about this today, doing your best to keep it all afloat, right? Absolutely. So your book is called Be Mighty, A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance. And the book starts with the statistic that women are twice as likely as men to experience an anxiety disorder. And I just was thinking as I was getting ready to interview you that I I can think of at least five women I've talked to just this week who are having trouble sleeping. They're so stressed out and worrying. They're doing that thing you were just talking about where they wake up at ungodly hours, worrying and stressing out. Can you tell us some of the reasons why this is the case and why you chose to focus your book specifically on women who are experiencing stress and anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know it's a pretty staggering statistic and, you know, we don't know for sure why that is. And some people speculate that it's an issue of men being underrepresented because the way our diagnostic categories exist, they're not capturing the ways in which anxiety presents in men. Um, And that may be true or that may be part of it, but I think that explanation really ignores, um, you know, the the systemic issues that are involved with walking through this world as a a woman, um, someone who identifies as a woman. So, you know, for example, everybody knows women are still paid less than men for doing the same jobs. Um, I mean, there's so many different statistics. Um, You know, we're constantly just bombarded with images about how we're supposed to appear. You know, you're supposed to be tall and thin and have perfect perky breasts and natural skin and all of these kinds of these things. Um, You know, we still take on more of the responsibilities at home, you know, family and domestic responsibilities, even when we're working outside the home. There are staggering rates of sexual abuse and sexual assault among girls and women that are, you know, of course, this happens to boys and men as well, but um, much higher likelihood for women. Um, you know, I could go on and on. There's, there's just example after example of expectations that are placed on women and bias against women that, that just make it a more anxiety-provoking context in, in which we live. 
I I think that that's such an important point. It of course it's complicated. There's a lot of reasons, but that there's something I think freeing about acknowledging some of these pressures and these systems issues that the kind of systems of oppression and power that make it hard, you know, pay gap and all these things that just make life hard because it's it's acknowledging that some of it isn't our fault, right? It's not our fault that we're stressed, that we're anxious, that we all feel like we're dropping balls and barely holding yeah. it together because yeah, of the absolutely. context we're in. Yeah. yeah. You know, and there's other things like, especially for women who are working outside the home, um, you know, there's, there's a statistic where women are expected to take on more tasks at work that are like the non-promotable tasks or what sometimes is it's referred to as like office housework. So we're more likely to plan the office party or be the person that a supervisor says, oh, go talk to her about being a woman in the workplace. And, you know, things that require a lot of time and energy and effort, but are invisible. You know, they're not the things that have an impact on the way we're evaluated at work or our advancement at work. And so, and, and there's other examples like that too. So things that are requiring a lot more of our time, but aren't leading us forward. And of course that those kinds of things are, are stressful because there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. And some of that invisible labor, I think happens on the home front too. And, you know, in heterosexual couple couples, probably more often defaults to, women, um, mm -hmm. but gets a little bit overlooked. Absolutely. Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. I'm actually wondering, too, while we're on the topic, if you have any thoughts about this, I have been reading all over the place that the rates of anxiety and stress and pressure on adolescent girls seems to be on the rise, that there's just a lot of girls with anxiety issues. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be with specifically with teenagers and adolescents nowadays? I mean yeah, my suspicion is that it has a lot to do with technology and social media. So I think part of it is the issue around social comparison. Um, and this is true for adults as well. This, um, you know, looking at the highlight reel of people's lives on social media and assuming that everyone else is perfect and happy and you know, they're using the the filters or the Photoshop or whatever it is, you know, to look perfect and, and to only display images of being on vacation or um, whatever the, the happy, shiny stuff is. And it's only one part of the story, but it's getting amplified as everybody else is somehow better and I'm less than. Um, and I think that's really amplified with adolescent girls. Um, and I think the other piece, too, may be this just constant bombardment of information. So not, I mean, through social media and just technology in general, is we just have access to more information than ever. And if this had been a couple decades ago, I don't know that we'd be as alarmed as we are about climate change, for example. And there's a reason they say ignorance is bliss. And so it's a it's a double-edged sword, right? Like it's a good thing that we have this information and that it's motivating us to action. And at the same time, I think it's really kind of terrifying. And, you know, even children are asking in schools, little elementary school children asking about the planet and what's going to happen. And you're seeing these new new levels of worry about really big grown-up things that kids and teens never used to have to worry about. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a lot of pressure and kind of things that feel pretty scary coming down. Mm -hmm. 
So we're both women. We're both, you know, working mothers. Let's talk a little bit about our own personal experience. I assume that you're interested in this topic because you have had some personal experience with this, Jill. What do you think shows up for you around stress, worry, anxiety? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's sort of ironic because I never really thought of myself as someone who is particularly stressed or anxious. And I went to graduate school and specialized in anxiety. And people will often say research is me search, meaning we're drawn to the things that are that 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 we struggle with ourselves. And and that never really resonated with me. <laughs> and it it kind of became a joke in graduate school because my my fellow classmates would all be verbalizing how stressed and anxious they were. And I would say, yeah, you know, I, I feel okay. I don't feel that stressed. But then I'm in the ER with debilitating migraines every single month. And I realized that for me, my stress and anxiety was coming out more in somatic ways. Um, you know, it was coming out in my body more than me being really aware of my thoughts or my emotions. And you know, now that I have a little more knowledge in this area, I, I think I'm a little more aware of the actual stress and worry and anxiety. Um, and it really got just much more triggered in graduate school because I so desperately wanted to do well. You know, it really mattered to me and um, I wanted to succeed. Um so these days, I think the way it shows up for me the most is, you know, what we were saying when you asked me the question about morning person or night owl is I wake up every day, you know, it used to be four, these days it's three. And as soon as I wake up, the wheels just start spinning and it's all the things that need to get done and, you know, being worried that there's not enough time to do it and, worrying about some, you know, family stressors, like whatever it is that's kind of going on in the moment. Um, you know, my mind just sort of spinning through the, the different possibilities and feeling like I need to problem solve. And what about you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have a few just fears, right, where it's probably just a slight anxious about specific things, but it's not too debilitating for me. But I can definitely relate to what you're saying, that I feel like there's this never-ending list of things to do, and it feels overwhelming to me at times. And I get the the worry, you know, I wake up too early sometimes. It, it For me, it comes and goes, because I'm generally, I'd say, a decent sleeper, but sometimes I'm you know, up worrying in the middle of the night or just kind of preoccupied. I think that's it for me is that I get stressed out and preoccupied. And then it just feel I feel all frazzled, you know, like my nerves mm -hmm. are buzzing with stress and my mind won't slow down and just all the typical kind of stressed out, worried things. And it happens pretty often. I mean, it's just there's so much at all times that I feel like I just don't have enough hours in the day to stay on top of. I'm, I've almost gotten used to that kind of new normal. And then when I'm feeling a bit less stressed and more relaxed, I'm like, oh, this is different. <laughs> mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. And yeah. I think it's so common. I honestly can't think of any of my women friends who wouldn't nod their heads right along with this saying, oh, gosh, yeah, me too. And whether they're working outside the home or whether they're home with their kids, you know, I think there was even a study, it, it was a little while back now, but that, and I don't remember the details, but where they basically were looking at people's conversations. And I think this was all, this all took place in the United States. 
And the word that came up the most often when people started making small talk was busy. Mm -hmm. And that that's not surprising at all. You know, I think that we're, we're all, we all get stuck in this hustle and bustle of busyness and it's, you know, we feel stressed and anxious. We have all this stuff to do. So then we do, 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 like try to do more to try to feel better. Like we're being productive, but it's almost like the more you do, the more you create to do. Mm -hmm. And it feels a bit like a never ending cycle sometimes. Yeah, it's definitely a cultural phenomenon. I think that's probably the most common answer I hear to how are you doing, right? It's just, it's endemic. And I think as, mm -hmm. you know, we talk a lot about, you know, we're working moms trying to bo juggle both, but I remember feeling that way before I had kids too. And I think probably some people listening to this are not parents. Um, and it, like you're talking about graduate school, I didn't have kids in graduate school. And I felt that way then too. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, that's true. You know, just all the work to do and the things to have yeah. to try to keep on top of it's a it's mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm, you know, we've sure. been We've been using the terms anxiety and stress a bit interchangeably or kind of talking about them together. What's what's the difference between the two? You speak about you write about this in your book. How would you define yeah, that? I do. So, um, you know, anxiety. Let me talk about the difference between fear and anxiety and stress, because even those things, fear or panic and anxiety are different. Um, so with fear, I think the easiest way to think about it is it's that in the moment acute reaction to danger or to perceived danger. So almost like the way you would respond if suddenly there were a tiger standing right in front of you in the room. That's fear or panic. And it it's accompanied by that, you know, fight, flight, physiological, racing heart, shortness of breath, et cetera. Whereas anxiety is a more future oriented, like there might be a tiger up ahead around the corner. It's more of that, like preparing for the possibility of danger in the future. And that's what comes with the worry, the what ifs kind of thing. Um, and stress. And so, you know, anxiety can come with physical symptoms too, like muscle tension or stomach distress or headaches. And stress can certainly come with those same kinds of physical sensations as well. Um, but I think of stress as like, stress is like when you're prepared for action, whereas anxiety is where you're prepared for perceived danger. And typically stress is in response to something that's happening in the moment. But when that situation is resolved, the stress is too. For example, let's say like you have bought a new house and you're feeling really stressed about all the things that are required to get the mortgage and buy the house and move, you know, pack up and move your stuff. Once you're settled in the house and all of that's done and resolved, you're not going to be stressed about it anymore. But with anxiety, the worry is just going to move to something else. So you might be worried and anxious about everything related to the move, but even when that's resolved, then there might be, oh gosh, what if I made the wrong decision? What if it's not the best schools for my kids? What if I don't like my neighbors? So the mind sort of finds something else to latch onto where it's still kind of thinking about the possibility of the, you know, the tiger up ahead around the corner, even when that particular situation has has ended. Mm, okay. So it's a little more chronic and less uh, situationally defined. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that, so what's interesting about your book is that it takes a, a slightly different spin. I think sometimes people think, okay, the solution to all this is that I'm just going to reduce all possible stressors. I'm going to try to get rid of anxiety or, or clear myself of anxious feelings and thoughts. And that really what we need to do is to kind of 
avoid or get rid or reduce it. And I, I just imagine that in your line of work, you've probably seen people try a lot of different ways to do this. So to start, can you give us some examples of some things you've seen people try to do? Oh, to, gosh, yeah, that to, list is like endless. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the one I hear moms talk the most about is having that glass of wine at the end of the night. And that, uh, I mean, I would raise my hand that that's uh, yeah, my hands up. I too. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that may be one. I think another one that everyone can relate to is procrastination. You know, when something feels aversive and you just don't feel like doing it then you put it off until tomorrow. And, you know, whether it's a glass of wine or it's procrastination, in the very moment you give yourself permission to do that, there is that relief, right? Like, oh, good, I don't have to, I don't know, do the laundry or write the report, whatever it is. But of course, the next day, there's just as much to do and a lot less time to do it. So that's where that avoidance becomes problematic. I think the other one I see a lot is, Um, And I guess it's the opposite of procrastination really is like overdoing things like people who fill every single second of their time and really stay busy because just sort of being and sitting with their own mind is too painful. And so if I'm just busy and distracted all the time, then I don't have to feel my anxiety as much. I'm not as aware of my worry. Um, and, And I guess somewhat related to that is perfectionism. You know, if I'm worried about something not being good enough or I'm worried about myself not being good enough when that inner critic pops up, you know, I'm just going to try to do everything all the time and do it absolutely perfectly to try to feel okay and less anxious. And those things, you know, certainly can work to some degree in the short term. And they do. I mean, it works or we wouldn't do it, but it creates all sorts of problems in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does. And I think all of those strategies really sound familiar to me on a personal level with myself and so many of the women I love. It's like we, yeah. we are constantly doing or constantly trying to find ways to, to put the anxiety off with a glass of wine or whatever. And so, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's not bad necessarily. It's just not super effective. And sometimes they do. They really do create more problems for us. Mm-hmm. And I think especially, you know, with the overdoing, this can be particularly problematic when you find yourself in a situation where you can't do that. Like if you get the flu or you're home on maternity leave or, you know, where you're sort of forced into a situation where you can't be busy. And if you don't have any practice of managing your anxiety in a different way and then your coping strategy is taken away from you, it can really be that much more difficult and painful. Yes. Yes. And in your book, you kind of point out that it may feel really tempting to do everything we can to totally get rid of anxiety and stress. But actually, that would be a bad idea because there are some, you know, important benefits and functions of having these states. So what are some of the upsides of anxiety and stress? Yeah, absolutely. I know that's, I mean... It, I think this is sometimes this is kind of a no brainer to people. And sometimes it's really surprising because anxiety and, and, and fear and panic, they can be so painful. It feels like there couldn't possibly be any benefit. And, you know, anxiety at very high levels can be paralyzing, but anxiety at very low levels means you're, you know, sitting around on the couch, not doing anything, but that moderate level of arousal, that's what 
make sure that we watch our kids when we're uh, out at the playground and make sure they don't go running into traffic. It's what makes us prepare for job interviews. It's what makes sure we um, study for exams. You know, basically uh, the arousal aids in performance when it comes to anxiety. And the other thing, and I think this is so fascinating. So Kelly McGonigal, who's a psychologist and has written a number of books, she has a new book coming out this month, um, The Joy of Movement. But she's she's most known, I'd say, for a TED Talk. She's one of the, has done one of the most top 20 watched TED Talks on stress and has a book called The Upside of Stress. And what, we have an episode that I did with her a while back on the on a different book, The Willpower the willpower yes, thing. Side that's note, right? Which yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I think that was her first one. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so and, TED Talk. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> digression. So, well, no, she's great. I mean, she's done so much work in so many different areas, and with stress, like what she basically says is that stress has kind of gotten a bad rap because what we hear about all the time is like the cortisol, right? That it that it releases and how this is very bad for your body. Um, but when we're stressed, we also release oxytocin you know, which is that bonding hormone. So when we're stressed and oxytocin is released, this enhances empathy and it actually motivates us to seek and give care. So our body basically tells us what we need to do when we're stressed. Like if you're stressed, go find your tribe and seek support. And this will uh, modulate that stress response basically and in addition, the oxytocin also is an anti-inflammatory. So it's really good for your body physically. And it even strengthens the heart, apparently. Um, and then this is the part I think I find the most fascinating, which the part, the, the cortisol, adrenaline part of stress that's unhealthy, the way to mitigate those negative effects is simply to appraise stress as helpful. So if you tell yourself, oh, well, this stress, this is telling me that whatever's going on right now is really important to me. So this is another way that stress is helpful. If you weren't, if it was, if you didn't care about it, you wouldn't be anxious, right? If you look at all the areas that you feel the most anxious and worried about, it's all the stuff that you care about. Like I joke in the book about how nobody's lying awake at night. Like I'm not laying awake at 3 a.m., worrying about whether Netflix is going to go out of business. I like Netflix as much as the next person, but it's not what I worry about. I worry about my family and I worry about my career and uh, my friends, like the things that matter the most to me. Um, and so instead of looking at anxiety as the enemy, we can really move toward it to go, what is this trying to tell me about what I really care about. And then if we can appraise the stress as being helpful in that way, oh, it's releasing cortisol. It's telling me I need to find my tribe. And it's also telling me what's important to me and what I care about. Then appraising the stress as helpful basically undoes the negative physical effects of stress. So people, if check out the TED Talk. Kelly describes it. She explains it much better than I do. But it's we really gotten a bad rap. We need stress and anxiety. Well, we can link to it on the show notes for today. I've actually encouraged some of my clients to watch it because I think they're as stressed out about the stress as anything else because they come in and they think, I'm so stressed. I got to stop being so stressed. This is terrible. And I get it. You know, it's not always a fun state to be in. Trust me, I feel the same way. But I also think that when you're stressed out that, oh, the stress is going to kill me. I'm going to have a heart attack at age 55. Then 
that's the part that Kelly McGonigal talks about as being yes. the worst part, right? And so right. if if instead, I think you can just try to take this stance of like, this is part of life. This is a side effect of caring about things and being active and, and engaged. It sort of changes the whole relationship to it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I actually wrote a blog called When You're Stressed About Stress, You're Stressed. And it's <laughs> I, I blog for psychology today. Um, and we can link to that if you want to in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but but it's all about this in a little bit more detail. And, you know, it's my biggest pet peeve when I'm watching the news or the Today Show or whatever. And it's all like, don't be stressed. Whatever you do, don't get stressed. You'll die of a heart attack. You know, that's doing nothing but increasing the stress because now everybody's stressed about having stress. And, that, yeah. and instead, we really need to change, you know, our appraisal of it and our relationship to it. Absolutely. Instead of working so hard to control it. And I'm really interested in thinking about how busy, engaged, active people can find more meaning in our lives as they are, that it's not about creating this like stress-free existence where you're just sitting on a cushion in a state of peace all day long. It's in the midst of all the chaos and the struggle that you find the meaning. And actually, yeah. Jenna talked about that in her values episode as well, that there's something about the struggle itself that the meaning comes through. Absolutely. This is actually something I've started doing in my practice. And I, I don't remember where I got the idea from. I wish I could remember. I want to give credit, but um, is to ask people to like back into what's important to people by asking about their self-critic and, you know, the negative thoughts and what is it that your mind is telling you? Because if you look right on the other side of that, it does tell you exactly what's meaningful to you. Right. We hurt where we care, as Steve Hayes says. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the approach you offer in Be Mighty. It's based on acceptance and commitment therapy. And it does, it turns that idea on its head that anxiety is bad, stress is bad. So we'll let people read the book to get the whole approach. But can you tell us a little bit about how your approach is different and, and how you look at it instead? Yeah, I mean, it's it it is traditional act. So it's essentially this idea that our pain is not the problem. It's not anxiety that's the problem. It's really what we do in response to it. And that when we're struggling to get rid of it, um, you know, that's where we really end up getting stuck, like too much wine and procrastination and busyness and overdoing those become the problems, not the anxiety that led to those things in the first place. So the whole book is really about letting go of trying to get rid of anxiety and and to you know to no longer think about anxiety as pathological but to recognize that it has its place and it can be helpful and that if we can change our relationship to it so that it's um you know kind of like our our travel partner like we don't have to like it or want it but just to relate to it in a different way and you know, kind of owning that to be human is to be broken. You know, I mean, we all know pain and rejection and, oh, I mean, all sorts of different things. Right. And I think a lot of times with traditional therapy, it's all about um, trying to convince people that they're not broken as a, and be mighty is really about like, yeah, no, you are. And so am I. And so is it. And so is everyone else. And that's okay. Like we can be 
broken. And I use the example of, you know, when you break a bone, the bone heals, but you can always see that fracture on the x-ray, but it no longer inhibits your ability to move around the world, right? Like once that bone heals and you're not on crutches anymore, you can still go do the same things you always did. And that's really what Be Mighty is about is, you know, yeah, we all have these scars and we can still have big, bold, beautiful lives. And big doesn't necessarily mean huge goals, you know, and that's the, the, what I talk about a lot is this idea of the me you want to be in this one moment. You know, the only choice we have to make is how we show up to this one moment. So you and I having this conversation, can I be real and authentic, even if I'm worried about how you or the listeners are going to perceive me? Um, <clears throat> and then whatever the next moment is and whatever the next moment is, and it can really make things, um, I think a bit less overwhelming. Um, if I'm really stressed about all the things that need to get done before I leave town next Saturday for holidays, when I'm with my kids tonight after school, let's say in the car on the way home, can I just show up and be with my kids in a way that's consistent with the mother that I want to be in that moment? Because the rest of the stuff will still be there. Yeah, that's nice. I think that... Um... Yeah, just open up to that experience in a different way. And I love the me, the me I want to be. I mean, I just I think about that a lot. You talked about that actually the last time you came on the podcast, Jill. And I think it's just such a nice way to think about it in all these different domains of your stressful life. Who's the yeah. person you want to be moment after moment? It's it's just lovely. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about um, go back to this idea of the in inner critic, because I think so many women I know who are just like phenomenal, amazing people doing awesome things every single day still have this feeling that they're just not doing things well enough. They're not holding it together. Um, I think there's that's one way that the pressure really shows up is that we get caught in this never ending sort of self-criticism trap. What what do we do with that, Jill? What, what's your advice mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's it's so true. And I even noticed it, my gosh, louder than ever for myself. I, it was it last week or the week before I went to the TED Women's Conference. And, you know, this is I, this is coming on the heels of you guys inviting me to be a co-host, which is like a professional dream come true for me. And the book is coming out. And, you know, I was like feeling pretty OK about myself. And then I went to this conference and was like, Wow. I mean, the self-critic just popped up because there are all these incredible women doing incredible things. And my mind just had a lot to say about how I'm not enough. Um, and I think everyone can really relate to that no matter how well they're doing. Even if it quiets down for a short time, it always comes right back. And in every domain, like I was just thinking, I go to work and I kind of feel like, Oh, I'm behind on everything at work. I have to, you know, I haven't done all these, all this paperwork that I'm behind on. And then I show up at my kid's school and I'm like, oh, my, you know, I haven't made enough healthy snacks or volunteered. So it's like, it just kind of is ever present, right? In every yeah. domain. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, again, I think part of that social comparison and, you know, the, 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 so the key here is not to try to get rid of the inner critic. I mean, go for it and try and let me know how that works. I mean, you know, I, I haven't been able to do it yet. 
And so I think just like what we were talking about before, it's really about letting go of trying to push all this stuff away and really changing our relationship to that inner voice, recognizing that she's there for a reason, right? I mean, this is the voice that's really just trying to keep us on our toes. You know, what would happen if you just thought like, yeah, no, I've, I'm done. Like I've, I'm doing everything perfectly and just right. You know, what kinds of things might slide or what goals might not be achieved and so recognizing that that voice is likely trying to help motivate us or protect us from something, but becoming, you know, I think the first step is, first of all, to be to notice and observe and become more aware of when that voice is showing up um, and then changing the way that we respond. So knowing she's not going away, that she's there to help, that we're not alone. So if we think about um, self-compassion as a different way to relate to this voice, self-compassion, we practice self-compassion by um, recognizing our own suffering, recognizing that we're all in this together, that all humans share this common bond of struggling with pain and difficult experiences, and then really practicing self-kindness, whatever that means. And maybe it's, um, you know, I know you're here trying to help me, but I got this. I'm here. My favorite thing is um, to think, what would Oprah say? So I love Oprah. I'm like obsessed with Oprah. I think she's amazing. She's my Shiro because Oprah is someone who has been through, I mean, abuse, assault, racism, sexism, poverty. I mean, you name it, she's hit the obstacle. And yet she has always remained her authentic self and she has kicked butt all over town and she uses her power for good, right? And I think, you know, if Oprah could hear all the mean things that my inner critic is saying to me, I wonder what she might say to me. You know, if I have a hard time coming up with it on my own or being nice to myself in my own voice, I think about someone who I look up to or admire, who I believe would be a compassionate human and think about what that person might say to me. So, of course, it doesn't have to be a celebrity. You could choose a grandparent or a friend or a fictional character. Um, and the other thing I think is to you get to choose how to respond. So, so one way is choosing self-kindness. The other is to just get a little distance from this voice. And, and I know I talked about this in the other episode, but I named my self-critic Sheila and I, I don't know where that name came from, but you know, when she pops up, I'm, I just sort of say like, okay, Sheila, like pipe down. I got it. You know, mm -hmm. like I, I hear what you're saying. I get that you're trying to keep me on my toes, but I've got this which is also a form of self-kindness, you know, to sort of own, like, I've got this. I don't need you criticizing me. And it's not a way to control it. It's just a way to get a little more distance from it. And so as you become aware that this voice is here, you have a little bit more space to choose how to respond. If I listen to this voice, is it going to help me be the me I want to be? And if I don't listen, or, or, or maybe if I want to be the me I want to be and pursue my values, then I need to sort of hold this, this voice aside and practice self-kindness to make it more likely that I can move forward. Yeah. I mean, I think when that's the only voice we're hearing and we start to really believe it and we're just beaten down by it, that's the problem. And I think by giving it a name, it sort of allows for other, like a, just a broader point of view about ourselves, you know, and 
acknowledging that we're not alone. I mean, I think for the two of us today, it was really important that we talk a little bit about some of our own personal experience with the inner critic that we both have, the stress and anxiety that we face, because I think that just acknowledging that and coming, you know, I'm human too. I experience it too. And sort of coming together to talk about it more openly is huge. Yeah, because if you keep right. it on the inside and you start to believe it, that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And then that also promotes that common humanity and reduces that thing we do with social comparison, where we assume everybody else has it together and we're the only ones struggling. If we're actually really talking about it and naming it, then, and that also mitigates the stress response, as we said before, when we, when we turn to our, our tribe, when we're struggling with these, these thoughts and feelings. Yeah. I think having a group of supportive people in your life who you can be really open about that and share with each other is huge. Yeah, absolutely. So your book ends on a really positive and hopeful note, I think, about women and some of the systemic stuff. And just totally coincidentally, my husband, my spouse didn't know anything about this, but he emailed me an article from McKinsey, the consulting firm that was called When Women Lead, Workplaces Should Listen. My husband knows I'm super into that kind of thing. <laughs> so he always sends me when he comes across it. And I do, I see some signs of change that give me hope. And I really do think that women coming together and supporting each other is a really powerful thing that that can happen. What are your some of your thoughts about how women can, um, you know, work to change the system and also come together to support each other? Ah, uh, yes, I love this question so much, and I think there are so so many things, um, you know. And, and first and foremost, as we've been saying, is trying to find a tribe. Um, I just ordered, well, now my friends are going to, the secret's going to be out if I tell you this, but I want to, I want to promote this. So there's a podcast I listen to called Writing Class Radio because I love to write and it's learning how to write personal essays and things. Um, and they are um, promoting, um, I'm trying to think what it's called, but it's, well, let me, let me read the explanation. So you can go to the website and you can buy these hats. They're camo hats with elephants on them. And the reason for the elephant is that in the wild, female elephants surround pregnant elephants while they give birth. They do this so the incoming baby stays safe, sending a clear signal to predators that if they want to attack, they'll have to get through a herd of fierce warrior women first. So that's the the explanation directly from the website. So I bought like a dozen of these to give to all of my my the women that are in my tribe who support me and lift me up and mitigate my own stress response. And the proceeds for that go to um, it's an organization that supports uh, women with breast cancer. And so I loved that. I thought it was just such such a great. Um, depiction of the ways that we can really rally for one another and support one another. Um, and I think there's lots of different ways to find tribes, you know, having, uh, finding like the women's groups inside professional organizations. So of course, you know, the, the four of us from psychologists off the clock are all part of the association for contextual and behavioral sciences. And there's a women's special interest group. And I know other professional organizations have women's groups as well. And I think that's an incredible um, source of support, especially in the professional domain. I think it's important to just get informed. I mean, to become aware of bias, because I think it's so 
implicit and not everyone knows. Um, Alicia Menendez wrote a book called The Likeability Trap that presents all of the research on gender bias in the workplace that's very enlightening. And I think it's motivating to, you know, you start to look for it and start to think about ways to change it, but also to get informed about all the positive stuff, like you said, that's at the end of the book. I mean, there's all this research that shows when women are at the table, organizations do better. They do fiscally better. You know, decision-making improves. Conflict prevention and peace talks are better. Um, I mean, that list goes on and on as well. And if we know these things, then we can talk about it and we can have it posted on social media and we can, you know, I think just get a larger conversation going. Um, There are courses that people can take. Ricky Kelgard, um, I'm participating in a webinar right now that ends next week. Ricky is a peer-reviewed ACT trainer. She's an amazing trainer and an amazing person. And she's been teaching this webinar called Fierce, Fabulous, and Female. Um, And I believe she will likely do it again. And she just started a, she has a professional Facebook page that people can join and find out about these kinds of like act and women's types of um, uh, offerings, I suppose. And I like to support women-owned businesses, you know, like when I needed a new financial planner, I specifically sought out a woman financial planner. Um, and I tell people that I do those things. And when I tell people, they tend to then go, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that too. And I think it just spreads, like we can lift each other up and and it spreads and spreads in small ways. I mean, even talking about Kelly McGonigal today, talking about Ricky today, talking about writing class radio today, these are all women that are doing things to make the world a better place. And I think all of us can think about where do we have the opportunities to try to um, not just support, but really raise up other women's voices and accomplishments. Um, and that kind of thing can really go a long way. I love it. I'm just thinking about women coming together in this, this very, you know, kind of supportive, collaborative way. And I have so many collaborations that are so meaningful, professional ones like this and other things I've done. And then even social ones like, you know, my book club and some other groups of friends that I have that are just for me a real source of just revitalizing myself and just um, support. It really, it is really nourishes the soul. It does. It is really meaningful. And I will say, if anyone hasn't read the book Wolfpack, do so immediately. It's only like 100 pages. Even my seven-year-old daughter read it. If you ask her what her favorite book is, she'll tell you it's Wolfpack. (gasps) I love it. I should give it (laughs) to my seven-year-old daughter. Yes. I mean, it's written for adults, but if they're good readers, I think they can get it and they might need to read it again when they're nine or 10. But you know, she now makes comments all the time about girl power and Mommy, did you know there's no such thing as girl colors and boy colors? And, um, you know, she's she's a little feminist at only seven. And it's because we have these conversations and I gave her Wolfpack to read. And it's I think it's important that we have these conversations and encourage, uh, you know, to have the conversations with girls and boys, um, but to encourage this like reaching out and connecting with a Wolfpack as early as possible. It's never too early to start talking about these things and, and doing these things. 
And she well, also asked me if she could read Be Mighty. So we'll see what she thinks about aw. that. <laughs> well, you're being a good role model for your for your daughter there, Jill, with all the wonderful things you're doing. Thank you. I hope so. Well, thank you um, for sharing with us about your book. Fantastic book. Um, I hope folks will pick it up and, and find it helpful. Um, and Jill, I can't wait to see what's ahead. Oh, thanks, Debbie. I'm so excited, too. I can't wait.